Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. So we are in, we're in the book of Psalms, and we are in book four of the book of Psalms. Jimmy asked me to preach um, a couple weeks ago. He said... Um, Psalm, the, book, the book four in the book runs from Psalm 90 through Psalm 106. And he said, take your pick. And almost immediately the, the Psalm 90 came to my mind, and that's the one we're going to be um, sharing from this morning. And it's, it's a powerful psalm. And actually in the book of Psalms, it's, uh, it's very introspective as compared to a lot of psalms. Now, some of your Bibles may have um, above, the, tithe, above the, the psalm, it may say a psalm of Moses, the man of God. Some of them may not have that. Um, I, I have personally taken it to believe that this is a prayer from Moses 3,500 years ago as he follows the Lord. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. So um, I can't prove what I'm about to say. I can only look at clues that are in there and make an educated guess, and hopefully it's close. But I want to use what I'm about to say as sort of a, a baseline for, for understanding Moses this morning as he's, as he's writing this song. Moses grows up in Egypt. He grows up, as we know the story, he's saved out of the river um, miraculously. He's taken to Pharaoh's house miraculously. He grows up in Pharaoh's house, son of extreme privilege, um, privilege beyond anything we know. And then he murders someone, and he's thrown into the desert, and he tends sheep for 40 years. And he is a nobody. Worse than a nobody, he's a fugitive from the law. And so in the desert, tending sheep, reflecting back on his life, I think that this is where he wrote this psalm. And the reason, there's a couple of things that I, that I think make it this be the place where it was. And one of them is... As you read this psalm, you, read, you hear Moses discouraged. You hear Moses weary. And you hear Moses beat down with, seemingly, God has rejected me. And he says that the, the years of man's life are 70 or maybe 80 years. So Moses will actually live to be 120 years. So it seems to me like it would follow that he hadn't quite got to the 70 or 80 year mark. So I say that. My opinion is that Moses probably wrote this in the wilderness prior to the burning bush. That's kind of the perspective that I have on it. So that's, that's kind of the baseline for it. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses. And uh, also, if you're, some translations render the first word, the first verse in here says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place. In the King James, it's registered as dwelling place. Some translations say refuge. Those are similar words. But I will say this about it. A dwelling place, the word literally means home or abode, place where you live. So my home is my refuge. I, I come home at the end of the day from the horrible world that I have to live in. And so it's my refuge, but my home is more than a refuge. I'm not a refugee in my home. I am a master in my home. And so I've used the word dwelling place because it, it, sounds, it sounds richer and greater to me. It's where God lives. And so learning how to live in the house of God, I figure God is not a refugee. He dwells where he dwells, and I want to live there with him. All right, we're going to read the psalm, and um, as we read, this is what I would like you to do. I would like you to bow your heads and hear the psalm. 
I'm going to read it as Moses would have prayed it, I think. And I want you to hear the prayer and, and just feel it in yourself. Listen to it. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep. In the morning they're like the grass which groweth up. In the, eve- in the morning it flourisheth and groweth up, and in the evening it's cut down and withereth. But we are consumed by your anger and by your wrath we're troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, and our secret sins are in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath, and we spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and let it repent thee concerning thy servants. Satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. Amen. That's a plaintive cry. That is not a cry as compared to a many psalms. That's not a cry of God exacting justice against someone else. It's just one man struggling. Struggling with meaning. Struggling with his place in life. Struggling with what, why he's living under the discipline of God. And so um, as, I, as I studied it, I wanted, I wanted to sweep through it and make it, I am a practical man. I need something that I can take home with me and live out. If it's, I love theology, but if theology doesn't work out practically, it doesn't, doesn't stick as well for me. And so um, today's, today's uh, sermon, hopefully you'll be able to take something home with you. I'm going to, um, I'm going to talk about something, though, that's kind of hard, honestly. I even have a confession today, so um, I'll be humbling myself in the process here. So we have four points that we're going to go into, but before we get there, there's a, there's a presupposition that has to be addressed. When, when Moses begins this passage, he presupposes something. He presupposes this, that if, he's going, if God is his dwelling place, then God already loves him. And so he starts there. Now, we do that all the time as believers. We presuppose, on most of the statements we make inside this building, presuppose that God loves us. And so we don't have to say, well, you know, God loves us, so therefore he can be our dwelling place. So he just says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place. And the presupposition is, if, if God allows us in his dwelling place, he already loves us. Now, I struggled with that a little bit because... I'm kind of used to thinking about it the other way around. Now, that's a very biblical thing. We love him because he first loved us. 
It's very biblical to say that because God loves us, we can love back in return. But we're used to thinking about loving God. C.S. Lewis talks about this, and we're going to start there. Um, we're going to start with his, and by the way, uh, Tuck, as we were singing the songs, the, the first song I had asked you to sing, but I had forgotten some of the words in there. He talked about God being good, talked about different things, and as I was thinking about what I had studied this week, I thought, that song is so perfectly tuned. We say that God is good, but do we know what God's goodness actually looks like? So this is C.S. Lewis talking about... What God's love isn't. If he's going to allow us to dwell in his house, this is not what God's love is. Listen carefully. By the goodness of God, we mean nowadays almost exclusively his lovingness. And in this we might be right. And by love in this context, most of us mean kindness. The desire to see others than the self happy. Not happy in this way or that, just happy. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are content? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see the young people enjoying themselves, and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of every day, a good time was had by all. Does that not sound like the definition of love that is used everywhere in today's world? How dare you say that I can't do what I want to do? You must not love me. You must be a hater. That is the definition of what love isn't in this scenario. Thankfully for us, C.S. Lewis will define what love is. Now listen. We can make definitions. When we're dealing with God, no definition is ever complete because God is far bigger than any English language there is or any word picture that we can make. But this goes a long ways towards it. When Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man. Not that he has some disinterested concern for our welfare, but that in awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. You asked for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect, is present. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, nor the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the world's Persistent as the artist's love for his work and despotic as a man's love for his dog. Provident and venerable as a father's love for a child. Jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. How this should be, I do not know. It passes reason to explain why any creatures, not to say creatures such as we, should have a value so high in their creator's eyes. It is certainly a burden of glory that is not only beyond what we deserve, but also, except in rare moments of grace, beyond what we want. Is that not an, a statement of a love that we don't even know about half the time? That is the love that is the grounding point for what we're going to talk about today. When I speak of God's love and when we speak of God's love and we speak of God's goodness, that is the terrible aspect of it. The fact that God loves us 
that fiercely should terrify us. Now, when we, when we, let me say this at the beginning. When I preach today, I'm going to be preaching about the discipline of God. If you leave here today and you think that I'm preaching salvation by works, you didn't hear what I had to say. So I want to lay that out right up front. I am not preaching that we are saved by our obedience to God or we're saved by doing the works. I'm talking about something entirely other. I'm talking about living as his children in his house, under his roof, doing his rules. You understand what I'm saying? There's a relationship going on there. So don't make that mistake. We're starting from this point that God loves us. He's invited us into his house. If our belief is, if our belief is in him and in his son and his atoning work for us and we walk in that, we are his children and we're in his house and there's a job for us to do, and that is to walk with him. All right, first point. To live in God's house, we must accept his total authority. Dietrich, could you bring that water up to me that I have down here? We live in a time when authority is questioned, but when moral authority is detested, not just questioned, detested. No one tells me how to live my life. Moses does not make that case. Moses makes the case that there is a God who has full authority with every right to tell you exactly what you should do and can do if you're living in his house. Let's go back to the first part of the, of the uh, psalm. This is how he makes the comparison. This is how he sets up God's authority. He, in his own mind, he makes this comparison. He, he puts God and his attributes against man and his attributes. Listen to him. Before the mountains are brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God, the uncreated, versus man, Thou turnest man to destruction and say, return, you children of men. God, the uncreated, man, the created. Let's continue on. From everlasting to everlasting. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood, and they are as asleep. In the morning, they're like grass. Do you know that? You're like grass. You grow up, you get chopped down, and you wither. God uncreated, God eternal, God unaffected by time. A thousand years, that's eh, like yesterday. That's eh, shorter than yesterday. It's like a couple hours last night. For us, a thousand years is a thousand years. Yesterday is yesterday. A watch in the night, let me tell you right now, the watch last night when the calf was loose running around seemed like a long time. It just seems like now a whole lot of lack of sleep for me. Man is like grass. We grow and we're so, it's so quick. When you're 15, you think, man, I got life ahead of me. And when you're 35, you, I still have a lot of life. And then you're 45 and you think, whoa. <laughs> that was a whole decade that just passed. It's amazing how quickly it goes. God, the immortal, he is not affected by death. He cannot be affected by death, man, the mortal. Return, you children of men. You're just a piece of grass that's going to dry and wither. In all of the parameters, in all the parameters that we can give, there, there is such a disparity between the uncreated and the created. God, eternal, uncreated, outside of time, immortal, 
and all of the things that are against us, it's like there isn't even a balance. We don't even show up on the spreadsheet. That gives him his authority. Can you resist his authority? Absolutely. Most of humanity, for most of history, has resisted his authority. And a few have not. A few. A few have been willing to bow the knee to the God who created them. Now, from this point on, everything that I say hangs on this. If you're willing to accept his authority, and if you're willing to live under his authority, you can live in his house. That means that if you're not willing to accept his authority, you can't live in his house. And Jack read, and he read from Revelation, and he read what awaits us. And then you get to the end of the chapter, and what does it say? But those who are immoral, those who are sexually active, those are all of these different things, they don't get to live in his house. They have punishment coming because they weren't willing to bow the knee. Now this is a hard one. Point two, to live in God's house, we must choose to submit to his discipline. In my house, I'm the dad. That actually means something because on a very small scale, listen carefully, on a very small scale, I am the creator and my kids are the created. There's a difference between me and them. I am a parent and they are not parents. And I will tell you something, that's a big difference in how you see life, isn't it? You can be grown up, you can be smart, you can be intelligent and advancing your career, and then a child comes along and wrecks everything because suddenly there's something in your life that is way bigger, way more important, way more necessary than anything you thought you needed, including sleep at the beginning. When you're a parent, a parent sees life differently than a child does. Now, hopefully, my children will grow up and become parents, and then hopefully they'll do like me, who went back to his father and did a little sheepish confessing, and they'll come to me and say, wow, I do see what you meant when you said such and such. To live in God's house, we must choose to submit to his discipline, though. It's no different for us. In my house, there are rules. I want you to imagine what it would be like in my house if I made rules and my children didn't follow them. Would there be peace and joy and blessing in that house, or would there be a hurricane and chaotic nonsense? That's what happens when rules are made. Now, in my house, we try to keep the rules as, as minimum as we can, and we try to make the rules mean something. If I say, this is something we're not going to do, there's a reason why. It's not just because I don't want to do it today. It's because there's some negative attribute to it down the road for my children or for my family or whatever, or a positive benefit. We're going to do this, and there's a positive benefit forward. Again, it's no different for us in the house of God. Why do we need to be disciplined? This is something that for me, when I was, when I was studying this, this is something that came really front and center for me. I don't know that I ever thought about this before. If you were to define what the scripture says to you that lets you know that you're a child of God, what would it be? 
It would be discipline. Did you ever think about that? The Bible says, matter of fact, well, let's just leave it right there. We'll, we'll get to that later. The Bible says that we are his sons, therefore, we're going to be disciplined. We're going to be chastened in the King James. Um, why do we have to be disciplined? If you don't kind of have an inkling on that for yourself, maybe you need to take a new look at yourself, but let's look at what Moses says about it. He's talking about the discipline of God in chapter seven or in verse seven through 12. He's talking about the, the weight of God's discipline on him. And this is what he says, why he's being disciplined. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee and our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. I wonder, I, I don't know this, I can't prove it, but I wonder if he's thinking about that murdered man back in Egypt. You know, he fled from Egypt to keep from dying for having killed a man. Now he's out in the wilderness. How many people around him know that he had killed a man back in Egypt? You think that would gnaw at you after a while? Knowing this secret behind you that you're not talking? We have to be disciplined because we have secret sins in our lives. We have iniquities in our life that our Father sees. Here's another one in verse 12. So teach us the number of days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. We're not wise yet. We ask God for wisdom. He gives us wisdom. Sometimes he gives us wisdom in ways we don't want. With my children, let me explain something. If I say don't do something to Eric and he disobeys me, something happens to him. The thing that happens to him is unpleasant. Over time, he becomes wise. He says, when dad says to do something, this is wisdom inside of his head. When dad says to do something, he means it. If I don't do it, it hurts. And he will eventually become wise and he'll begin to see that dad means what he says, so I better do what he says. And if I do, my relationship remains unbroken with my father. He becomes wise. And then 1 John, jumping forward, another reason we need to be disciplined. Because 1 John 3 says, Beloved, it does not yet appear what we shall be. We don't know yet what God's plan for us is. And so discipline is part of the process of God molding us to be what he wants us to be. Sometimes, David, you get the first class ticket, and sometimes you just sit there for eight hours. So maybe, that was a, maybe you were a good boy and you didn't have to get disciplined this time. That would be wonderful. All right, um, this, is a, this is a New Testament passage that I wanted to just, just kind of pull apart for a little bit, talking about discipline. All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for four things. Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Doctrine, that dry, dusty stuff that the preacher likes to talk about. No, doctrine is the study of God, the study of God's relationship with us, the study of our relationship with each other and how the scripture lays that out for us. It's important stuff, but it's mostly teaching. What is reproof? I'll tell you what reproof is. Reproof is when you do something wrong and you get called down for it. What is correction? Correction is when you're doing something, may not be wrong, but it needs to be redirected. Those of you with kids will know this. Your kids are doing something you've asked them to do. They might be doing it, but it's not quite the way you wanted them to do it. Maybe you're on the job. David's correcting one of his boys. Hey, I don't want it wired that way. I want it this way. I appreciate your work, but I need it done this way because this is my way of doing it. That's correction. You didn't do something wrong, but you're being trained. Instruction in righteousness. That's when I am taking on 
as a, as a learner, I'm taking from God what it means to walk in righteousness. Those are all ways of being disciplined. Discipline is not just negative. It can be positive. It's directive. It's showing us what God wants for us. Who is to be disciplined by God? Those who are his sons. His sons and daughters. If you come to my house and you bring your family, Landon, can I use you for an example? Let's say Landon and Courtney and, her, and their kids are over at our house one evening and we're having dinner together. And we're sitting, the adults are sitting, having a good conversation, talking, and through the, through the living room <laughs> comes this madhouse of kids. Now, Reese is leading the pack. But Joshua is right behind him. Who am I going to call down when they come through? I'm going to call down my son. Why? Because Reese isn't my son. What I'm hoping when I call down Joshua and tell him to stop running through there like a hurricane is that Landon will hear and call down Reese and tell him to stop running through there. But the point is, I'm not calling down his kids. I'm calling down my kids. And Josh might come to me later and say, Dad, I, I was just following. It doesn't matter, son. You're my son. You're going to be the one getting corrected. That's how we know that we're sons and daughters of God. We are the ones that, you know, it's so important. It's so important, actually, that if you're not, if you don't sense discipline of God on your life, you might want to reexamine your faith and see if you're actually his child. Because he says he not only chastens us, he scourges us. That's painful. I'll bring another quote from um, Lewis. This one is about the, the relationship, listen carefully, between father and son. Love between father and son in this symbol means essentially authoritative love on the one side and obedient love on the other. The father uses his authority to make the son into the sort of human being he rightly and in his superior wisdom wants him to be. Now, let me caveat by saying, we're talking on the one level about a spiritual father living in his house, but we're using our physical fathers and real life here to, to model it. I recognize that fathers in this world aren't perfect. Parents don't always get things right. Those of you who are parents know that. Those of you who are under parents know that. It's the case. It's the way it is. But the model is still there. And when Jesus was on earth... He did never, he never attempted, he, he called himself, he said, I and the Father are one, but he said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I am always subservient. So there's the authoritative love of the Father that says, Son, this is what I want, and this is why I want it, and I expect you to obey me. And the Son obeys back in obedient love because he trusts the Father's wisdom in that. That is to be, that is to be our example. When we're in the house of God, because we can trust God's we can trust God's direction. We can trust God's judgment. We don't always understand it. Matter of fact, a lot of times we don't understand it. The fact of the matter is, it really is a great illustration from the, from the life of a parent here. Because when you have a small child, the small child does not understand the dangers, say, of walking beside the road. So I told my kids, you want to get squished? You, you want to go out on the road and a car just smashes you flat. I, like I made a graphic. You want to be just like, you know, like, do you really want that? Do you want me to have to go out and find you all squished? Then stay off the road. They did. All right. What is this holy discipline that I'm talking about? What is the discipline of the father? 
This is my confession. About a month ago, I was standing right there, and I was leading the singing here on a Sunday evening. And I made a statement that night. This is what I said, basically. Hey, how come y'all don't know all the words to blessed assurance? If you had grown up like me, you'd know all the words to blessed assurance. You remember that, George? Wow. What a pathetic statement. Guess what happened? I messed up the words to blessed assurance. (laughs) I sang the second verse twice. And you know what? You might have heard a mistake, but I'll tell you what I heard. I knew I was getting spanked in front of everybody. So you watched, those of you who were there that night, you watched the Lord discipline me right in front of I at least don't spank my kids in front of everybody. But he did it that night. And I'll tell you, I knew what was going on when that happened. You know when the Lord is disciplining you for something you've done wrong, you know it. Don't reject it. That is a part of being his son, and that is what it takes to live in his house, to live submitted to his discipline. What did Moses think? Moses was struggling. This is what he felt. He felt a sense of God's displeasure and anger. And by the way, if you think that it's wrong for God to be angry at you because you're his child, and Jesus took your punishment for you, you don't understand what's going on. Let me give you an illustration. Supposing that somebody comes to me, maybe it's a... um, Maybe it's a relative, and, and they have a young man, say 13, 14 years old, and they say, this young man's in trouble with the law. He's stolen a bunch of stuff. He owes $40,000 to this store because he stole a bunch of stuff, and he's going to go to juvenile delinquency unless somebody is willing to take them under their wing and adopt him and make a son out of him. And I say, wow, I feel for him. I have compassion in my heart. I want to take him on. And so I say, bring him to my house. And I take 40000 I don't have $40,000, but I take $40,000 out of my account, and I pay his bills. I've cleansed, I've cleansed the debt from him. He no longer owes anything to anyone. But do you think that'll make it easy for him in my house? Nah, if he's used to being on the street, if he's used to running on his own game, he's going to be really struggling with living under my authority, under my roof, under my discipline. Those are two very different things. Christ took our penalty But now we walk with the Father, and he's turning us into sons, and he has a stubborn, obstinate lot of them that he has to turn into sons. That's where the discipline comes in. So uh, Moses was feeling that. He was feeling the weight of that. He's out in the wilderness. He's like, God, why are you still mad at me? I I, I want this discipline to be over. I want to be back in, in good fellowship with you. And so he's feeling that weight. He's feeling that displeasure from God. And I'll tell you, if you've been a Christian for a while, Here today, there's a fair likelihood that you have lived under that for a certain amount of time over something you've done until you're willing to confess up on it and get it off of your conscience. Third point. To submit to God's discipline will lead to his mercy. Let's read in uh, verse 11, 12. 13 and 14. Who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear? So is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. 
Return, O Lord, how long, and let her repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. When God sees me in humility respond to his discipline on me, he responds in mercy. And if you don't believe it, Jesus said this when he was on earth. He said to people, he said, if, if, a, man, if a man's son comes to him and asks for a fish, is he going to give him a serpent? If he asks for bread, is he going to give him a stone? He said, if you then being evil, not evil as in totally depraved, but if you then being bent towards evil know how to give good gifts, how much more do you think your heavenly father is going to do so? So I know this as a father. I know this. I don't like to discipline my child. I do not like the sensation of disconnectedness. I don't like having to deal with my son is upset. I don't like having to deal with the long-term effects of it. But so much better when I come to a child and I say, this is a problem. And they hear me and they receive it with humility. You know what happens in my heart? I'm going to do whatever I can to help them back on their feet. I'm going to do whatever I can to move them forward as quickly as I can. Let's restore this relationship. Mercy comes. Mercy comes pouring out of the Lord when you just stop fighting him and accept the reality of what he's giving to you. Mercy comes. When he sees your humility, he responds. And if you don't believe that's biblical, then let's go back to the book of James and we're going to read a passage in there. James chapter 4, listen to what God says. Verse 6, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's a reproof. In the book of James, there's a lot of reproof. Be afflicted, mourn, weep. That doesn't sound very good. That's what happens when you see your sin. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Promise. But it's based on you being willing to humble yourself. By the way, you can't fool God with false humility. The kids just watched the, uh, the Anne of Green Gables movie recently. And if, for those of you that have watched it, do you remember when... Um, she has to go back and apologize for something that she said. And she goes back, and this ridiculous apology comes pouring out of her. And Marilla turns to her and says, What? You didn't need to say all that? And she said, Well, I thought if I was going to make an apology, I was going to make a good one. It was completely bogus. In reality, she probably didn't mean much of anything that she said. It sounded good. So don't come back to God and say, oh, God, you know, I, I, know, um, I know I've done bad and, and I need to get over this um, so that you can you know, get back, so I can get back in your good graces. He can see right through that. As parents, we can see through a lot of it. One of the ways for me that I was able to see um, through the years with my kids was because early on when Melissa and I were married, somebody said to us, when you discipline your children, always return them back to joy. And um, I've talked to someone since that in this room that their father would always return them back to joy. And this is what it meant for us. 
you, you administer the punishment, and there's a time of tears, and there's a time of difficulty, and then you love on them. And you bring them back, not negating the pain that's in that, not negating the sin that they committed, but you bring them back to fellowship with you again. And you know how I could tell when it was okay? I would sit down, give them a hug. You know what I'm going to say? If they weren't right, the hug was stiff. (laughs) And I knew in that moment that they were still resisting the fact that they had been disciplined. Dad, that was not fair. Now, I was going to have to deal with that later on. But you could always tell when they, when they, and the younger they are, the better, it seems like, with that one. And Jesus said, I, unless you are like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. I think maybe he's talking about that. They come back to you, and they, they crawl in your lap. They, want, they would rather have you. They would rather have you back than any amount of right on their part. And I have felt that. I've felt the softness of the embrace when the, when the repentance was complete, and I have felt the resistance and I knew something wasn't right there yet. <clears throat> Point four, to submit to God's discipline will lead to joyful purpose. Reading the last part. Make us glad, verse 15, according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. Everything we do, everything we do is ultimately pointless. Everything you do is ultimately pointless. You will live, and you will accomplish some things, and you will die. And even if you've amassed a huge amount of money, someone else will get it. Everything you are is ultimately meaningless. Unless someone bigger, more important, and wiser, and longer lived than you, decides that it has meaning. You ever think about that? We were talking about Solomon in Sunday school this morning, and so I asked the kids, I said, I just wrote Solomon on the board, I said, give me a word that you think of when you think of Solomon. Well, we thought of wisdom. Reese said 700 wives, we put 700. You know what the last thing was on that list? His temple. We thought of the bad stuff. We thought of the things, but we didn't think about the temple. The temple far outlived Solomon. But even it died. Even it was destroyed. And Solomon, if it had not been for the fact that he was the wisest man who ever lived and penned words in Scripture that we can still use today, would have disappeared into the dust far and away in the back. I have a cousin who moved to Nashville. He's a singer-songwriter. And he said to me, my terrible fear, my great fear is that in a hundred years, no one will ever know I lived. What? In a hundred years? We'll be lucky if most of any of us in here are known that we ever lived. How many of you, I've gone past that, um, the plaque in the back end of the church with the list of the ministers that were here at Bacon's Castle. I think I've stopped once and kind of looked through them, but you know what? It's just a name and a picture. It's just a faded Disappearance. The fact of the matter is, is it doesn't matter. If we are in God's house and we are in his dwelling place, Jack, there's going to come a day when he's going to make his dwelling place forever with us. 
And that's where our significance is going to come from. Outside of that, it's pointless. And so Moses is feeling that. He's feeling this this lostness. I'm out in the desert. I had this miraculous beginning. I had this miraculous, like, salvation out of the river and upbringing. And Pharaoh didn't kill me. And I was going to be maybe the next Pharaoh in line. And then I messed it all up. And now I'm out here. And what was the point of all that about? What in the world was the point? But he couldn't see that in the future, there was going to be an amazing, an amazing unfolding of God's purpose for him. One last quote from C.S. Lewis. We were made not primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that too, but that God may love us. That we may become objects in which the divine love may rest well-pleased. To ask that God's love should be content with us as we are, our brokenness, our sinfulness, our horridness, is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because he is what he is, his love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. We cannot even wish in our better moments that he could reconcile himself to our present impurities. No more than a dog, once having learned to love man, could wish that a man were such as to tolerate in his house the snapping, polluting creature of the wild dog pack. What we would here and now call our happiness is not the end God chiefly has in view. But when we are such as he can love without impediment, we shall in fact be happy. When we are such as he can love without impediment, we shall, in fact, be happy. Moses, he gives three things at the end of this psalm. Three things that he would like God to do for him to show that his discipline, his his, uh, relationship is restored. 16 and 17. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. Moses will go forward from this point. He'll take the children of Israel out of the promised land to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, the glory of the Lord will come down and will be visible for all. Moses will go up on the mountain and he'll be in the presence of the Lord so long that his face will glow with the beauty of God such that when he comes down off the mountain... He will have to be veiled. And he will bring down from the mountain the Ten Commandments and the writings that we still read. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy will be compiled by Moses. The work of his hands will be established. The kingdom of Israel will be started in the the land that God intended for it to be. God's glory will be revealed in him and God's beauty will be revealed on him. The things that he asked for, God specifically gave him in God's time. When the discipline that, God, that Moses needed was complete and God could use him. How much, how much looking at Moses' life, growing up as a, probably a spoiled prince in Egypt, how much of Egypt did God need to weed out of Moses for those 40 years? How much of Moses did God need to weed out of Moses? And how much of his sense of 
God has got something good for me. Look at all my miraculous things from my birth. He had to get rid of all of that. Moses, it's not about you. I'm preparing you because I need somebody sold out to me. To submit to God's discipline will lead to joyful purpose. I want to tell you about a dog named Roscoe. Roscoe is a fine dog. He's not my dog. I'm not really a small animal person. I like my animals large and either making milk or meat out in the pasture. That's kind of my, my interaction with animals. But I can appreciate a nice dog. Roscoe belongs to my sister-in-law. Roscoe's an Australian shepherd and he's beautiful. And when I go to his, Roscoe's house, when I go to Mike and Gidget's house, Roscoe comes over and he, he sits next to me and he looks at me and he smiles. He's probably thinking, can you open the refrigerator? But I, he never said that before. Um, Roscoe is not a coyote. He's not a wolf. He's not a fox. He's not even a dog like I would have that would be an outside dog that would obey sort of some of the time. Roscoe is obedient and he's kind and he knows when not to bark, which is anytime he's around me. He doesn't forget who I am every time I go out the door and come back in and try to chew my leg off every time. He's a nice dog. But Roscoe is not a nice dog because of Roscoe. Roscoe is a nice dog because his master trained him, took the bad out of Roscoe and replaced it with good. And Roscoe is benefiting. Do you know how Roscoe is benefiting? Because he gets to be inside where it's warm. And he can be good on his own and so he doesn't get thrown back out the door when he's being naughty and tearing around the house. Roscoe learned how to do what was needed to do in order to dwell in the house of his master. And he is benefiting greatly for it. And when I come over and I sit next to Roscoe, I like Roscoe. He smells good and he doesn't bark and he likes me. We're not dogs, but the truth of the matter is when God chose us, as C.S. Lewis said, why, why he loves us with such intensity is far past what we can imagine. But If we will respond, if we will learn how to surrender to his authority, if we'll learn how to be under his discipline and humble ourselves, we will receive mercy from him and he will give us purpose in life. You're not going to write another Ten Commandments. You're not going to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. But you just might, you just might walk with the Lord in joy and you just might train another generation how to walk with the Lord. I have two applications. It's from this passage. I kind of skipped over it in the process. If you go back to verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Has anyone ever numbered your days? I did this week. Obviously, I'm preparing for this. If I live to be 70, I have about 8,700 days left. That doesn't seem like very much, does it? I waste days. You waste a day every once in a while? Oh, I think I'm just going to veg and not do anything. 8,699. What if we had in our house a big glass jar filled with marbles with the amount of days? Not, we don't know when we're going to die, 
but with the amount of days that in here, 70 or 80 years. And I put that in there. And I just started taking them out one at a time. And every time I took one out, I thought, whoa, it's one less. And you watch that jar begin to drop. You think, do you think that you would apply your heart to wisdom in that moment? I'll tell you how it applies to me. If I begin to number my days, a couple of things immediately happen. I am faced with my mortality every time I take one of those marbles out of there. And I'm faced with the reality that my God doesn't have to take marbles out of a jar. So I'm always aware of God, my Savior, who is outside of time, and my own limitations. Number my days, and I begin to apply my heart to wisdom. If this is the amount of time I have left, and I want to be effective for the Lord, I want to have a purpose in life, I'd better get started on it. I have a limited time. Make it count. So as we leave here today, if you could take that with you, and just think about that verse this week. Lord, teach me to number my days and apply my heart to wisdom. Help me to know today. I don't get this day again. Make it count today. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to PastorJimmy at BaconsCastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.